Coming to you from the Dietitians and Nutrition Support Dietetic Practice Group, this is the DNS Member Podcast, where we explore topics relevant to our field. From support line content to nutrition celebrity interviews and everything in between, this podcast is where DNS members can go behind the scenes and explore the driving forces behind cutting-edge nutrition support. I'm your host, Christina Rollins. Let's get started. Hello, everyone, and thanks for listening to the DNS Podcast. Our topic for today is Social Determinants of Health with Registered Dietitian Nutritionist Tara Clemente. Tara currently serves as the Director of Health Policy and Partnerships for Chicago Public Schools and is also a Clinical Scholars Fellow with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, an organization working to expand health coverage and create healthy communities across America, where everyone has an equal opportunity to pursue a healthier life. Tara earned her Bachelor of Science degree from Purdue University, completed a dietetic internship at the University of Iowa Hospital and Clinics, and earned a Master of Public Health degree at the University of Illinois, Chicago. She is the recipient of numerous awards, including the Rush University College of Nursing Outstanding Partner Award in 2017 and Purdue University Diamond Alumni Award in 2016. And she has also held numerous volunteer leadership positions within the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. So Tara, welcome to the DNS podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to start by asking you to tell us about yourself and what initially led you to enter a fellowship with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Yeah, so uh, as you read in my background, I've always been interested in health policy. And so um, that's really what led me to pursue my MPH um, and directly in health policy and administration. And I've been with the district now with Chicago Public Schools for eight and a half years, which is crazy to think about. Um, But what I've been doing over this eight and a half years is Really, when I started at the district, I started as the only dietitian, and I was doing nutrition education, working a little bit here and there on the menu, but it was very apparent early on in my time here that there were a lot more (laughs) challenges and a lot more work that could be happening um, with the lens of a dietitian. And so I've been building my team. Now we have two other registered dietitians on staff and really every problem that we are faced with, we understand that it goes deeper than what's on the surface. And that's really what led me to pursue the fellowship. Um, I've been very lucky uh, to be to have been accepted into this. And what's really unique about this fellowship is that There is a leadership development component, but there's also a project we are working on. It's called our wicked problem. And so the idea is that we're solving a problem that has persisted for a long time and that a lot of other people have tried to solve. And we're really trying to have an innovative approach to that. So our our actual project for the fellowship is to integrate and pilot the community health worker model in two schools to address the social determinants of health for all students in those schools, but particularly for our students with chronic health conditions, which we consider um, asthma, diabetes, seizures, and allergies, among others. The leadership component of the fellowship 
has been very meaningful and has really taught me a lot about myself. So there's a blend of assessments within there that diagnose kind of my preferred leadership style and then really develop the skills that I have to understand the strengths and weaknesses that come with my leadership style and then how to work with different types of styles. Um, to give a little context to that and something that I've really learned is my preferred conflict management style is collaboration, which I could have guessed before taking the, uh, the assessment because it's what all of our work is in public health is collaboration. But what was really great to think about is that um, the main weakness of that style is that you usually need a lot of time and conflict doesn't always have time. And so really learning that while collaboration is great and, and you know, really thinking about how to leverage kind of chronically underfunded initiatives in public health and how to leverage those partnerships to get things done that, you know, when a decision has to be made, you have to make the decision and it's okay if not everybody's happy and there's a way to kind of move on to there. So it's been really great to just learn a bit more about myself and about leadership in, in this space of public health, but then also to work on a problem simultaneously where, we're, where it's a partnership grant as well. And so I have four other fellows on my team who work across different sectors in Chicago. And then we are part of a cohort of 36 fellows from across the country. So we're actually learning from people from all over the U.S. doing a lot of different work, but when it comes down to it, when you're trying to really fix this culture of health, we're all working on the same thing. It might just be a different topic. So there's a lot to learn from each other as well. When I hear Robert Wood Johnson, my mind immediately goes to social determinants of health, which in my dietitian mind, I then translate to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So are those concepts really synonymous um, and why or why not? Yeah, that's such a good question. And I think that it's a, it's a yes and, right? So I do think both of those concepts are really important to understand. They're equally important, um, but they're not exactly the same. So to me, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it, it can be very prescriptive. And like even how you just said, being a dietitian, it is very clinical. So when you think of it, it's really like, okay, what are the immediate needs and let's address them. So um, you may think, okay, does this person or patient have food? Do they have shelter? Do they have water? Are they safe? And yes, we also, we also do need to address immediate needs. And so it's important to to address those while we're also, you know, triaging for the next step in care. But you want to really make sure um, while that can turn more to a checkbox, so get food, find shelter, remove a, a patient from something unsafe. When we think of social determinants of health, it's really addressing those, but going a, a step deeper into what is the root cause of, of this issue or this um, this uh, problem that is persisting and how do we solve for that? So when you think of a person who is in need of food, yes, we can definitely put them in touch with a pantry. We can find places where there's free food available. But when, you, when you're addressing the social determinants of health, you really wanna think about what's one step deeper. So of course, then enrolling a family or a person in SNAP so they could have regular access to food. Um, but then you want to go even further and think, well, why does this patient or person or community area not have regular access to food? And so um, it's kind of going that one step deeper, even thinking of something like shelter and stable housing. You can immediately find housing, but then 
you want to make sure you can find affordable housing, but then uh, why, what's the main issue of why um, somebody is experiencing instable housing. And so what I've really been learning a lot, and I think, you know, we're really in this important time where people are talking about social determinants of health and how did we get here and something that I've been learning about in my fellowship, but then also my own personal learning is this other idea that there's structural and political determinants of health that have led to the social determinants of health. So when you think of something like, like how I brought up before with food, why is it that certain community areas perpetually need access to SNAP from the first place? Why are there no groceries there? grocery stores there? Is it that the living wage, the minimum wage is not a living wage? And so even the income of a community area cannot support or sustain a grocery store in a neighborhood. And why is that so? And, and really understanding that nothing is by coincidence and uh, that social determinants of health didn't happen. It's not a coincidence that people of color are disproportionately impacted by some of these unfavorable outcomes. Um, but you know, we have centuries of policies and practices that have led to this. And so when we think of addressing needs is first and foremost, I absolutely agree that we have to think of those hierarchy and get, get a person stable, but then going that next level of social determinants and thinking, okay, how do we stabilize and then give regular access to food and housing and water and education, but then going f even further as that structural. And so thinking of all of the things that led to the social that led to the high needs. So it's really, you can go very deep down into a rabbit hole. Um, but I think that you're right to bring those two ideas and concepts together and that they do go hand in hand, but I definitely think that there is more, uh, there's always more to the story and it's really understanding that, you know, a person does not choose to be um, food insecure. There's a lot of things that have happened to make food inaccessible. You mentioned when you talked about your project a few minutes ago that you had selected two Chicago schools to, to focus in on. What was your method or your approach to determine which schools would best benefit or be the most appropriate for this type of program? Yeah, great question. So we picked one school in a primarily Latinx community area, uh, and then we picked one school in a primarily Black neighborhood and community area. And we looked at asthma rates, which in Chicago, when you look at urban centers or areas, typically about one in 12 children will be, have a diagnosis of asthma. When we look at CPS, we are nowhere close to that percentage. So we have less than 5% of our students having a asthma diagnosis on file, but we know students have asthma because we can, we can kind of like project that from the data, but then we also have emergency department room data that shows many students, many children in Chicago are accessing the emergency department for asthma care. Uh, of course, uh, emergencies and episodes of asthma attacks and flare-ups, but then even just kind of that regular, I ran out of my inhaler, going to the ED to get that. And so we were thinking about, well, what goes into all the way to having a flare-up and going to the, or a, an episode and going to the emergency department? And if you work backwards all the way to 
does the student know they have asthma? What goes into even getting a diagnosis? Going even further back of when we look across Chicago, we have different levels of housing that have lead or have been in disrepair. And it's all sort of tracked right there in public record. Um, and so thinking about all the, or we have had coal plant, coal power plants in our Latinx communities. And so asthma rates are higher because the air is not clear. And so it's not that a family did anything to get asthma, but live in a place with poor air quality. And then if it's been chronic or pervasive generationally, a lot of times it's like, well, this is just how we breathe in our family, or it's not seen as an as a challenge or something that needs to be cared for um, because the education has never been there or the intervention. And so we really looked at a lot of different things. Uh, we looked at the social determinants of health. So when you look at income, food access, housing access, um, we've looked at our school track records. And so when we, I say that as like the district track record of we have closed schools in areas um, of the city that in a lot of studies have come out to say that that was a really harmful decision to make. And it's in, it's disproportionately impacted, again, communities of color. So we've really, we looked at a lot of different things. We focused on asthma, but then our project, one thing I didn't note was our project was supposed to start in September of 2019. And in October of 2019, we had a major um, CTU work stoppage and then COVID came around in March, 2020. So the project has evolved where we thought, this is so great, we'll focus right in on asthma, we're gonna save the world, you know, a typical starry-eyed approach to any intervention. And we really realized that, yes, we can focus on asthma, but there's so much more that goes into just getting that diagnosis of asthma. Uh, and that's where we really brought into that social determinants of health approach. Well, and I think from a, from a clinical dietitian perspective, because that is our target audience, right, for this podcast, you know, we think of a patient comes to the general unit or they go to the ICU and that's when the dietitian care starts. But you almost jump or flip it to say, ER visits where dietitians typically aren't, right? Like we don't typically round in the ED, that's an outcome. So what can we do steps ahead of that to prevent that from that ED visit from ever occurring? Yeah, exactly. It's really about putting those systems and structures in place to really to prevent the worst possible outcomes. So even when you think of a direct food related issue. I'm sure a lot of listeners deal with diabetes and how many of our diabetic patients end up in the emergency department for things of just, had it been known they were food insecure or were having issues tra getting transportation to get to healthy food, to get to the doctor. And it, it all goes into why your blood sugar could be high or low. And it's not just solving for the food part. It's like I said, transportation, education, it's housing. Maybe you're in, you have unstable housing. And so you couldn't make your doctor appointment because you're staying farther away this week. And it's just would have been impossible to get there. And that's really when you think of those social determinants, it's like giving the benefit of the doubt and thinking of everything that could have got in the way to getting to that appointment. And it is not just a person woke up and said, I don't want to go to my appointment today. I don't care about my diabetes. It's not that it's, what are the 1 million things I have to do to get to my appointment on time? And what if I don't get there on time and they can't see me? Should I just not go then? 
what does it mean when we say we're working to build a culture of health and to achieve health equity? These are the million dollar questions. <laughs> so I'll use uh, Chicago Public Schools as my example for a culture of health and what we're really trying to do here. And I think this could be thought of for hospitals, it could be thought of for housing associations, anything, parks, anything that really could impact positively a person's life. And so it's really to that point we were just talking about, it's not, it's moving away from acute care where we always will need acute care, but it shouldn't be the default where we always have to solve the biggest problem, the biggest health emergency, where we're really getting to that prevention and health promoting activities. And it's, it's thinking about every decision we make and how could it positively or negatively impact someone's physical health, emotional health, social health, how could it impact the environment? And it's really zooming out and thinking every decision has something to do with it. I, we kind of joke in our office that we can make anything do, go to health. <laughs> and so even I was in a task force um, with some other city agencies and, you know, Department of Transportation, they have an obvious connection to health thinking of personal safety. But even I took it one step further of like, well, what paint do you use on the sidewalk? And is it toxic? And can animals eat? Like, what if a kid falls on it? You know, and so it's, you can always go all the way down to health. But so it's really thinking about what is the environment we are creating and is that environment supporting the health of whoever your target population is? So when we think of schools, there's physical safety. So is the building warm if it's supposed to be warm and cool if it's supposed to be cool? Is it dry? Is it repaired? Is the water healthy or good? Is it running? Is it, you know, no lead levels. When we think of health promoting activities, is there a garden? Is there a playground? Do children have physical education on a regular basis? Is there nutrition education, healthy food access, all of that, the meal program, everything we do is all about really taking care of those needs of our students for day in and day out. And a lot of times, you know, folks who are not within school or public health, they'll wonder, you know, why are we doing all of this? And it's really about we think of the responsibility we have of taking care of our students and the trust that our parents put into us to take care of their children every single day. When a child shows up to school, that's a big responsibility. The parent is saying, I trust you to take care of my child for the next eight plus hours for the 180 days out of the year. And we really wanna make sure and that we're removing any of those barriers to learning and we're really taking care of the needs that we know are, are there. So can, in our office, you know, can children see, can they hear, do their teeth hurt, do they need dental care? Um, we enroll families in health insurance and SNAP. And so when you think of that getting to health equity, it's removing any of these barriers that we can, eat, we can remove for children and families to get to care whether that means bringing care to the school, whether it means getting a, you know, a warm handoff referral to care and making sure families can get there, that they know how to get there, that the services to be provided are culturally competent in the right language, um, and, and really going that extra mile to do the best that we can 
so that every child can be healthy and every child can learn. And when you think of that for a clinical, you can really think of the same thing. So in hospitals, you know, there was a big movement, remove all soda, healthy vending, and you always get a lot of gripes, <laughs> but it's a hospital. <laughs> Are people coming here to get well? Then we should do whatever we can for people to get well. Is there a quiet meditation space? Is there a lactation room? Are the bathrooms accessible? You know, are there elevators that work all the time? And so when you think of that culture of health, it's not just, I'm a patient, I'm presenting with a problem that I, I need fixed. It's also this space that I'm in is welcoming the, you know, the team, my care team is understanding, they can speak my language, they're listening to me, they're really taking my pain seriously, you know, it's like all of these things that really lead to a way bigger culture of health than what we think of right now, which is I have a problem, I'm going to go to the doctor and get it fixed. It's like, but how did you get there? How healthy is the space you're in? Do you have parks at home? I mean, we can go down a million miles into uh, where, where this can take us, but that's really what I think of is that we're, we're health forward, we're thinking of that. And then if we have these healthy spaces where people can thrive, we're going to get to health equity because we're going to incrementally show and change all of the supports and all of the places where people visit to be healthy. And it will also make that an easier lifestyle to achieve. What strategies do you find most effective when you're working to address social determinants of health? Yeah, I think it's so because as if I haven't made it clear, this is quite complex and there's a lot to do. Absolutely creating cross-sector partnerships, cross-departmental, really leaving no stone unturned when you think of who to partner with to solve a problem um, and, and including community members in every step of that way as well. So whoever is the recipient of a program, whoever is really the intended end user should also be included in the development of any strategy, any program or innovation that is being created. Um, and so when I think of just the partnerships that we've really created and in, in understanding everything that needs, that is happening, you know, we think of the parks, we think of the libraries, um, we think of hospital systems, universities, and of course, schools themselves. And so when I, we, we really just make sure that we're looping in as many people who can be at the table. <laughs> um, and I think as dietitians, if, if you feel, and I've said this, I've um, lectured to students before in public health and nutrition, and if you think there should be a seat at the table for you, then you should bring your chair if there's not a seat there already. And it's really anybody who wants to be involved should be involved. Um, and, and you're thinking of, we're undoing centuries of policies and practices in order to address the social determinants of health. And so we're gonna need everybody. <laughs> um, so we really, we, it, we do a lot of partnerships, a lot of community engagement. Um, and then of course, you know, keeping in touch with updated practices, you have to be evidence-based. So, you know, you can't just have a good idea and think they'll all work. <laughs> you have to show a little bit of work behind there. Um, but that's really where we find 
we find the most success in that, in, in bringing together as many people as we can to the table. Going, I guess, a, a level deeper with, with the question, how can dietitians even start to understand a person's situation? You know, and I'm thinking of, you know, that example of a diabetic client who maybe they're lacking running water or they don't have a safe place or a stable place to live, but they're embarrassed. So they're not being fully transparent with the dietitian when they're having their initial intake. Yeah, this is really a really good point of consideration. And so I think first and foremost, you know, anyone listening to this uh, episode who, if social determinants of health is newer to you, you know, you're in the right place, learn, (laughs) um, taking the time to understand that first and foremost would really be an important first step. And then I really would encourage start having those conversations with your colleagues and with your team, you know, somewhere where it's a little, it's a safer space, you know, everybody's learning and growing, thinking about having maybe even group learning seminars, watching a webinar together and talking about it, debriefing. When I think of two, some other key allies in this learning could really be the social workers and the case managers who are faced with addressing a lot of the issues that it doesn't, it won't really get to dietitians unless we ask or unless somebody volunteers it. Um, but really understanding, you know, what are some of the top areas? And it could be patient specific or not. Understanding, you know, where is your hospital or your care center located? Where are most of the patients coming from? What's going on in the communities where most of the patients are coming from? Getting a deeper understanding of of that will also just make you a more informed caregiver. So whether somebody tells you about their their circumstance or not, you would already know, okay, I know that there's the closest grocery is five miles and the bus stops at mile four. And so I I understand there's this mile gap of getting to the grocery or whatever the issue is for the community. Um, So I would just say, you know, do a little bit of your own learning and then My top advice, I think, too, is just really to stay humble and to try your best. And if you have a well-intentioned heart in the care that you're giving and you're willing to apologize or just be gracious if you do accidentally make an assumption or if you discuss something with a patient that they didn't want discussed with you from another caregiver, um, you know, really just being willing to apologize and and trying your best. (laughs) Um, But I do think it's a lot of self-learning and reflection and understanding your own background, your own privilege, what you anticipate, what you picture as how, quote, how somebody should be caring for their condition versus how, what resources are actually available for a patient to take care of their own um, health needs. And even understanding there are kind of easier gateway questions. Oh, do you live with anybody else? Are you caring for anybody else? I know that we find a lot of our parents and caregivers are caring for their own parents and their children. And so just being open to maybe some lighter touch questions that could lead to a good conversation. I know we're all also in a rush and we're on a time and we don't always have time to sit and talk to a patient for a long time, but some people will want to gauge if you are a trustworthy person before they're going to tell you all of their um, anything going on or, or if they're having a lot of challenges. So 
really those building those skills on being a good listener and understanding you know how to do those even body or social cues now with masks sure it's even harder but like those cues of like I am listening I am engaged I do want to help you even if it's not nutrition related I can try to get to somebody who can help you with something and we're almost out of time so I just have one more question thinking of healthy community initiatives as we are seeing these pop up across the country where do you see the RDN fitting in and supporting the cause Yes, this RDNs, it is our time. <laughs> this is our opportunity. Um, it's definitely the time to lean in on all of this work going in with addressing social determinants of health and social justice work. And just thinking about, for me, I frame so much of my work in that I believe access to health, I believe access to food is a human right. And so when you ground yourself in whatever your core value is, you know, determine that if you're not sure what drives you sit and really reflect like my core, one of my core values is equity. Why? And I can give you a whole podcast on why. But (laughs) so, you know, I think about how are we addressing access to food and it's, we're trying, but it's a little haphazard. (laughs) It's there's SNAP and there's pantries and there's other food access programs. And during the pandemic, we realized, wow, a lot more people are hungry than we knew before. And a lot more people lost their jobs and that meant more need for food. And we have a chance here to really change a lot that we were doing that wasn't working. And, and we can focus here on food. That's our passion. That's why we're dietitians. Um, but we also can broaden, we have a lot of skills to offer to the cause. So if you think of, you know, dietitians are mostly getting looped in, we're always getting looped in for nutrition ed and cooking demos and um, that kind of like nutrition counseling. And absolutely, that is where we should be and that is our lane. But also thinking of giving other advice around things, whether you've learned. And something I think of too is I'm getting looped into a lot of now is like urban, urban ag or just growing and gardening and I think it's great. And I think dietitians should be involved in that. But what I also think of, because I think food is a human right, is I'm always kind of pushing on like, well, why do we assume somebody with low food access wants to grow their own food? And why are we kind of making them grow their own? What's the real issue here? Um, How do we get some grocery chains into this neighborhood? How do we work on getting some of those uh, tax dollars always floating out there (laughs) to go to really benefit some of these more sustainable changes. So I don't have the solution for how we're going to solve, you know, world hunger and world peace, but I'm going to keep working on it. (laughs) And I think that that's the main thing is really lean in. We can make anything health parallel and you can then add anything nutrition. So, so don't feel that since you have a nutrition expertise, you can't jump in on something if it's not quote, in the food lane, you know, if it's not directly related to what we think. We have a lot of skills and a lot of knowledge and a lot of passion we can lend to a a lot of the work happening and you just have to get your foot in there. And then of course you can always add a new nutrition level to it. (laughs) With that, we will conclude today's podcast. Thank you for taking time out of your day to discuss the social determinants of health and how we as dietitians can collaborate with others in support of building healthy communities across the country. Listeners, to learn more about the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, please visit their website at rwif.org. Until next time, I'm Christina Rollins. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.